you Google definition of business model, it'll say a company's plan for making a profit. I don't love it, but it does create a good start. A better definition for the business model is a framework on how a company will create value for its customers. If you'd like to earn CPE credit for listening to this episode, visit earmarkcpe.com. Download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. Continuing education has never been so easy. And now, on to the episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Build a Focused Firm with Hector Garcia, CPA. I'm Blake Oliver, your moderator for today's episode. This is the second installment in an eight-part series all about how to build an accounting or bookkeeping firm that gives you joy by focusing on what matters. Thank you to our sponsor, Avalara, for their financial support to make this series possible. Avalara's award-winning tax automation solutions help accounting practitioners of all sizes, from sole proprietors to top 100 firms. Avalara simplifies sales tax compliance with real-time rates, automated returns filing, registrations, tax research, and automated tax solutions for specialized tax areas. They live and breathe tax, so you don't have to. Learn more at avalara.com slash accountants. Thank you to everyone who has joined us as we record live. Please chat with us. With that out of the way, let's get to our topic today, which is business models. Hector, it's great to see you again. I'm excited to talk about accounting firm business models. Hey, Blake, how are you? So yeah, definitely we have to um, talk about business models second after positioning. Uh, episode one, which is all about positioning, which is the fundamental strategy on how you think about how you provide value to your customers, how you communicate that you're different than everyone else, and how you identify the type of customers that you work with. So uh, really business model comes one, in theory, it comes one step before um, the, uh, the positioning uh, exercise. However, the reason why we uh, teach positioning first and business models second is because positioning, it's the one that connects with accountants and accounting professionals quickest because uh, that's a very difficult thing to do when you're in a dinner party or in a networking event and somebody asks you, what did you do? And then you want to give a cohesive answer that basically says, what did you do, how you do it, why you do it, and who you do it for in a single sentence, in a single statement. Uh, generally, I, I don't like to say I'm an accountant unless I'm purposely trying to shoo the person away, right? So if you're trying to uh, attract people, you, wanna, you don't want people to say, oh, he's just an accountant. She's just an accountant because people tend to make up their own stories in their mind about what an accountant is. So positioning allows you to reshape that story and, and, and be the author and, and protagonist of that story of what is it that you do for a living. So that was positioning. So now let's talk about business models where we're gonna basically take a step back and positioning it, it's part of it. We're gonna skip the positioning piece during the business model conversation. And we're gonna talk about everything else that is that entails once your positioning is set in stone. So that's gonna be part number two. And then uh, make sure you, you connect with us for part number three on technology, part number four on your sales process, part number five on value pricing, part number six on attracting and retaining talent, 
part number seven on innovation and part eight, the end of the mini-series on practice management. So let's jump right to it. And we're going to talk about three essential topics. There's going to be three lessons you're going to walk out out of today's podcast. Lesson number one is the legacy of Peter Drucker. I think every small business owner, every accounting professional, every consultant, whether it's a a technology consultant, management consultant, financial consultant, accounting consultant, needs to understand the legacy of Peter Drucker. And once you learn it, you're going to go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. He's kind of the godfather of modern business management. And there's a reason why he has that title. The second uh, lesson you're going to walk out with is designing a business approach or designing a business model. Okay, so just think about that, designing a business approach or business model. And sometimes the two terms are mixed together, business model, business approach. This is how you attack business, how you go after uh, business. So in the last lesson, it's going to be how we create value. So it's going to be the three underlying lessons we are going to learn today. So let's start with the legacy of Peter Drucker. So the first quote from Peter Drucker, which is going to set the tone for the entire talk today is, the theory of the business is best defined as what the business will and will not do. The theory of the business is the term that Peter Drucker used to describe the business model. The the term business model, model didn't exist then. So these are the very beginnings of that. One fun fact, business model, the concept, it's only about 30, 35, years old, and it hasn't been until recently, and when we talk about um, the designing of the business model, it hasn't been until recently where it's sort of rethought and reimagined, and I think you're really going to like um, sort of how you go about designing your business model. The next thing that you want to talk, that we want to discuss is the assumptions, and this is uh, Peter Drucker's assumptions on the theory of the business. So you have a theory that you can do, a, do something, somebody will buy it from you, and you will profit, right? That's, that's the theory of the business. Now, for that theory to come true, there are three assumptions that you need to have. One is that you know who your customers are, assumption number one. Assumption number two, that you know what do those customers value. And assumption number three is, can we deliver that value at an appropriate cost, obviously, under the price that we charge, right? In order to be profitable, our cost is to be under the price that we charge, and our price needs to be under the value that we deliver, and we'll discuss value and cost deeper in another session. But even though we may know all those three assumptions, or all those three assumptions uh, may reign true, at any point in time, that is subject to change. And it needs to be put to the test every year. And I, I say every year, there's no specific heart number in terms of the cadence of this. But since accounting professionals, for the most part, are very cyclical, at least once a year, you need to evaluate. Does your theory of your business, your business model, and all the assumptions still hold true? And if it doesn't, you need to, yourself, abandon it, reassess, before your competitor proves your theory wrong. It's much better for you to disrupt yourself than for a competitor to disrupt you. What happened to the taxi industry? They've never 
They never questioned their business model. So Uber came in, destroyed it. What's happening to the, to the hotel hospitality industry? They never questioned their business model. And then Airbnb and BRBO are proving them wrong. And this is going to happen across all industries. And I'm not just thinking about solving the problem with the accounting industry business model. I'm talking about your specific firm's business model. Because within the accounting industry, there could be multiple firms with different business models. And that's the stuff that we're going to just discuss in detail. Now, I'm going to give you a couple of essential business lessons from Peter Drucker that has shaped my thinking about business ownership and business management. Lesson number one, what identifies a business is its purpose. Everything else can be outsourced. What defines a business is its purpose. Everything else can be outsourced. Think about Uber. Uber essentially outsources the entire labor pool, right? And their purpose is to help someone with technology get to point A to point B in the quickest, most pleasant way as possible. Everything else is outsourced. So it's, it's interesting that he said this 40, 50 years ago. Next one is, the purpose of a business is to create a customer. Now, there's a subtle difference between the purpose of a business is to find customers versus the purpose of a business is to create a customer. If your business is solely searching for customers to take from other businesses, you're competing against everybody else. And we talked about this in lesson one, is only way to create a customer is for you to define the problem that no one else has defined. And the minute that you are the sole owner of that, or the sole author of the understanding of that problem, and the, and the sole solver of that problem, you have created that customer out of thin air. Out of thin air. Okay? Uber is a perfect example. They created customers out of thin air. They did not go after the taxi industry's customers. They created customers out of thin air. And you want to know why? Because I am more likely to put my daughter, my 14-year-old daughter, in an Uber to take her to do an errand than to put her in a taxi. And they created a customer because she was never going to be a taxi driver's customer. So think about that. The purpose of a business is to create a customer, not to go find a customer. The second piece is actually a two-part of the first one of the, of the create a customer quote. The two most important functions of a business are marketing and innovation. Everything else is cost. So I know the accountants and financial people in, in this podcast are flipping out saying, well, accountants are very important and finance people are very important. You know what? Accounting and finance are cost. They don't create value. They may safeguard the value. They may protect the value. They may create insights on how the value is measured and potentially how it can be kept and project its future value, all that sort of thing. But they don't create value. They don't find they don't create customers. Marketing and innovation is the only one. And I'm telling you, every year that I read this quote, it's truer and truer and truer. Next big lesson from Peter Drucker is, in business, 
all profits come from risk. This is counterintuitive. Most accounting professionals are trying to avoid risk in the first place. And they're trying to become more profitable by not taking risks. That doesn't make any sense. That's how the stock market works, right? The riskier you're, you're, you're willing to be, the more the profits could be. But also the bigger the loss, of course. But if you're sort of tired of the current profits that you're getting now, and your business is very stable and hasn't changed, and you've taken no risks, then you should not be surprised that the profits are not going to go up anymore because there's a direct correlation between risks and profits, also between risks and losses. That's true. But you take the risk because you believe on that business model. You believe in that business approach. Next one is culture eats strategy for breakfast. Now, that becomes truer and truer and truer when you have employees, when you have managers that work under you. If you are the firm owner and you've always been the manager and you have the privilege to no longer be the manager and give someone else that's not a firm owner the reins of the firm, per se, so they can be managers, at that point, it clicks. Without culture, your strategy is useless. Culture is how the humans inside of your organization behave. And culture is how your customers behave too. If your culture is so good, they start behaving like you. When you go to Walt Disney World, and I, I mention Walt Disney World a lot because sort of a gold standard. When you, when you go to Walt Disney World, people dress up like the characters. People dance and sing the Disney songs. People pretend to be Goofy and Mickey, et cetera, et cetera. Because the corporate culture seeps through the customers. And then once the customers start behaving the way your employees behave, that's when you know something great is happening. That's when you know your culture is greater than your strategy. But also, maybe the culture was the strategy. Sometimes the culture is an accident, a happy accident from the strategy. Go back to the Uber example. The culture of Uber is five-star drivers. That's what they want. They reward five-star drivers. What's happening? Once the drivers start behaving like five-star people, customers do what? They start behaving like five-star people. So as a business, you can reshape culture, and I mean culture in general, with a really, really strong corporate culture, stronger than strategy by far. Next one is, knowledge is the source of wealth. And we're going to get deeper into this a little bit later on. Knowledge is the source of wealth. Next one is, efficiency is doing the right, sorry, efficiency is doing things right. Effectiveness is doing the right things. There's nothing more useless than efficiently doing the wrong thing. There's nothing more useless than executing a strategy perfectly, but the strategy was wrong. The theory was wrong. So efficiency is doing things right. Effectiveness is doing the right things. I no longer think of efficiency. I only think of effectiveness. And the best way to predict the future is to create it. One of my favorite ones. Hey, Hector, we had a question come in from Donna. 
She wanted to know which Peter Drucker book you would recommend as a good starting point. Oh, wow. Great question, Donna. So the way I got introduced to Peter Drucker is a book called The Daily Drucker, and it's 366 pages, and it's every page is one bite-sized Drucker lesson. So if you want to do this low and slow immersion into Drucker within a year, I would say The Daily Drucker, great book. Um, another one that is probably really, really good for folks that don't have big teams yet is managing oneself. See, Peter Drucker wrote for years about management. His whole thing was management. And, you know, management comes from the word from man, right, which means people. So management means managing people, right, handling people. One of the books that I think is probably one of the best sellers is the one that wasn't about managing people, was about treating yourself as an entire team. And that was called Managing Oneself. I'll probably say that's my favorite. And I have a question, Hector. I love um, this statement that marketing and innovation are the two main functions of a business. Uh, because I, I've worked as a product marketer and as a, uh, a, a head of marketing. But I feel like in accounting firms, marketing is more of an afterthought. But Peter Drucker is actually saying, no, it's, it's like a core. What was it exactly? Uh, it's, it's like the two main functions. It's one of the two. Like, how do you marketing reconcile innovation? That? Yeah. How do you reconcile yeah, so, marketing? So this is the, this is the problem that we have. And, and, and many of, and I think many accounting professionals will recognize this, which is currently the state of the accounting profession is there are more customers than accountants. There's more demand than supply. So right now we're both blessed and cursed with that circumstance. We are blessed because most accounting professionals have to be really, really negligent not to have a whole bunch of customers waiting at the door to work with them because they're just, there's a big scarcity of accountants in general, at least good ones in any way. So that's the blessing. The curse is we get too comfortable. We're getting too comfortable. And if you're an accounting professional that has a clients, you know that you have clients that are profitable, that always have positive cash flow, and you send them reports, and they don't care about it because they're not hurting, because they have money in the bank, because they can meet all their obligations. So nothing that you do as an accountant, it's ever urgent for them because they're sort of blessed and cursed with positive cash flow. I think this is happening to us too. I think the problem is, is that for so long, we're sort of been accustomed to just very easily being able to hang or shingle and customers will just walk in that we don't think marketing is that important. But marketing right now is not going to be for you to get clients over the next firm. Marketing is going to be for you to get clients over the software companies that are going to take over our customer base. So the way I reconcile it is the software companies are going to take our business with their innovation. And since we can't innovate as fast as they can, at least from a technology perspective, from a software AI perspective, where we can innovate better than software companies, it's on the marketing piece. Because marketing is the human side of, um, of creating value, where innovation is sort of, and, and it is debatable too, but innovation for the most part is a technological part of creating value. But 
in between innovation and marketing, there's innovation of the mind, right? Which is reframing, right? You can innovate simply by re-explaining what you do in a way that it connects with the customer better. That's reframing. And we only do that through relationship building and communication. So I would say a subset of that marketing and innovation, it's also relationship and communication. If you can nail relationship and communication, you can leverage that to market and reframe and contrast some of the software companies that are out innovating at least our fingers when it comes to data entry and automation. So did that answer your question? Yeah, that, that makes sense. Okay, so let's talk now, talk, let's talk about designing the business approach or the business model. So the definition of a business approach or a business model is a company's plan for making a profit. And I'm using the word approach and model the same way because it, it has to do with how you're thinking of approaching or attacking that problem as a business. So according to Investopedia, the definition is a company's plan for making profit. I actually don't like that definition. If you Google definition of business model, you'll say a company's plan for making a profit. I don't love it, but it does create a good start. A better definition for the business model is a framework on how a company will create value for its customers. Now, I'm going to give you another Peter Drucker quote. Profit is not the purpose of a business, rather the test of its validity. Profits are actually the cost of staying in business. Profits are the cost of staying in business. Wait, how are profits cost? Without profits, you can't stay in business. Period. We all know that. But without profits, so we can reinvest in marketing and education, we're going to get out-innovated by someone else. So it's not just the operating profits. It's profits to reinvest back into marketing and innovation. So profit is not the purpose of a business. Rather, it's the test of its validity. And then profits are the cost of staying in business. I love that quote from Peter Drucker as well. So what's the diff difference between a business plan and a business model, or a business approach and a business plan. A business model is the theory of the business as designed. We will design it, right? Because we can have a theory, but then we design how we approach the business model. A business plan is the roadmap for execution of the theory. Kurt Lewin had this famous quote that says, there's nothing more practical than a good theory. <laughs> I love that one. Right? So you can go into business willy-nilly without a plan, without a business model, and it could work. And many people do it. But long-term, for this to work, you got to have a good theory. You got to have a good idea. Because executing a bad idea flawlessly, it's useless. But what is the best definition of a business model in my mind? And this is sort of my own, is the process of capturing a portion of the value we create for our customers. The process of capturing a portion of the value we create for, for our customers. That's my favorite one. It's my own definition of it. For obvious reasons, it's my favorite one. But I think that one really uh, encompasses what we're trying to communicate here. Now, 
There is an operating and accounting implication in the business model, sort of the underlying problem per se, at least the immediate thing that the customer feels when you're interacting with them and executing your business model. And that operating and accounting implication is time and money. What, what I mean by time and money is the main implication of the business model is when does the customer pay and where they get their value. How you design your business model affects these two things. When does the customer pay? When do they get the value? Because if your business only got paid after delivering value, then most customers would never say no to that. Think about that. Think about that. And I think restaurants have sort of pushed this narrative that you walk in, you pay nothing, you eat, and most people are confident that if they tell the chef this food is bad, they don't have to pay. It doesn't work always like that. People don't always try to um, uh, sort of execute that, that theory. But re in restaurants, you usually pay after you get the value. But in, in all other business, it doesn't work like that. So that's the main implication of your business model. How you, de how you de design that business model basically affects the timing and the money. When does the customer pay? When do they get their value? So you want to think about asking yourself that question after you're done designing your business model. Is this piece clear? Is it clear to me? Is it clear to the customer? And does the cash flow involvement of all the cost elements that you have to invest in in order to deliver that product or service, does it work timing-wise? Now, there are essentially, for a service industry, four ways to capture that value, aka your pricing strategy. So for service industries, there's four main ones. There could be more, but right now there's four main ones. One is capturing value based on units of effort. Best example for that is charging by the hour. Another approach to capturing value could be based on deliverables. Best way to describe that is a productized service. I think like an H&R block is a good example. When you go to H&R block and they look at all the tax forms that you need, and at the end, you're going to need, you know, the 1040 with these six schedules and every schedule has a price. And basically you pay based on the output. That is an approach based on deliverables. H&R Block, is that too much concern? And I, I, I'm, talking about, I'm talking about retail tax shops, okay? Not to pick on H&R Block, any retail tax shop. They're not concerned about tax planning or are you saving in tax or is your corporate structure the most optimal one? Are you saving enough for retirement? None of that stuff is coming into play. You know, how many forms, how many sheets of paper did we print out on your tax return? Based on that, you're going to pay a fee. The third way to capture value, aka pricing strategy, is as a percentage of the value created, best known as value pricing. My favorite. We will have a, a whole session on that. And the fourth one is by access to our capabilities, which is the subscription approach or the subscription model. Best example for this is Netflix. Netflix is in the business of access to the capabilities. The capabilities being their entire library. Disney Plus, same thing. The capability being their entire library. You subscribe for access to it. Now, underneath these four 
approaches of capturing value. There's this concept of the sub-approach or the sub-model, which is how your business does that. Like this is, we, we know the mechanism of how we charge, but now we want to know the mechanism of how we can actually be in the position to charge. And there's essentially five ways or five sub-approaches to that. And this is based on how you organize your business or how your business is organized, sometimes kind of interchangeably. So one is, is your business a source of labor? Is your business a source of labor? So for example, if you work with any sort of outsourced data entry people overseas, they don't really provide much advisory or judgment or decision-making. You basically tell them, this is what I need you to do, and they do it, right? Kind of like a virtual assistant. They are a source of labor, and that's a business submodel, and that could work. Another business source model, uh, submodel is, are you the source of knowledge? So are you getting paid for just having the knowledge or experience? So a business consultant would be a source of knowledge. A tax expert, it's sort of a mixture between source of knowledge and source of labor. Although, as Peter Drucker says, everything else could be outsourced, right? So if the purpose of your business is being the source of knowledge, everything else can be outsourced. Because at the end of the day, if you know what laws apply to that particular complex tax return, you can have somebody else do the data entry all day long. What you can't outsource is being the source of knowledge. The third sub-approach is, are you the source of customers? So for example, we were talking about Uber earlier. Uber is not the source of labor. They have no employees. I mean, they have them in the sort of in the admin, uh, 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 in the admin capacity. But the actual drivers, they're not employees of Uber. They're all subcontractors. They're not, Uber is not a source of labor. Uber is a source of customers, okay? Uber figured out how to get everyone on earth or 60% of people to have the Uber app in their phone. So what Uber did is they penetrated the hearts and minds of customers. So they're using the app to then get the ride. And then they work with a different business, with a different business model, which is a source of labor. Now, the source of knowledge could also be something you can apply to Uber because Uber now has the working knowledge of all the customers that want to ride and all the drivers nearby and the traffic the current state of traffic, plus the distance and time it takes to get from point A to point B. So now Uber is both the source of customers and the source of knowledge. The fourth sub-model or sub-approach is the source of money. Banks are the source of money. That's their business model, is to have money, to lend, to multiply, to invest. And the fifth sub-approach is the source of infrastructure. So this is when you have a building and you rent. You have equipment and you rent, okay? Some businesses are all five of these. In the accounting profession, most of us are either the source of labor or the source of knowledge. But in my business model, talk about Hector Garcia, I'm actually also the source of customers because people watch my videos, they contact me via email, they ask for help, I don't do what they want me to do. I refer out to another expert. The other expert 
sometimes, depending on the situation, can pay me a commission for bringing them that customer. That is when the source of customers could be your sub-approach. An influencer, it's a good example. Influencers don't really create any value other than finding the customer or bringing the customers to the brands. So think, think about that. Are you the source of labor? Are you the source of knowledge? Are you the source of customers? Are you the source of money? Are you the source of imp- infrastructure? Are you a combination of all th- of five? Do you want to be a combination of one or two or three of these five? Think about that deeply because most people don't think about this piece. Source of labor is your human capital. Source of knowledge is your intellectual capital. Source of customers is your social capital. Source of money is your financial capital. And source of infrastructure is your manufactured capital. Okay, now, b- behind, so, so we had talked about the business model, then we talked about the sub-model, and then we're going to take a one layer even deeper, which is how do we approach customer creation and acquisition? So this is the practical, this is the tactical. So we talked about strategy, let's talk about tactical. How, what does this look like at the end of the day? So we have the list building approach. So as I mentioned earlier, an influence marketer, that's what they do. They, they build lists, they build followers. Sometimes list builders, their customers are actually the product. Like the actual customers are the product. The, the influencer, the list builder, is just building a list of customers who are gonna be customers of someone else. And your job is just to broker access to that list. So you, did, you created some value in some way, whether it's through social media, through YouTube, through giving access to knowledge, helping people, reputation, whatever. You, 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 you build this list of people that trust you, and then you, you, use, you monetize that trust by sending those people to the brand or the business that actually sells to them. That's an interesting one too. As a YouTuber, my followers in YouTube are both my customers because they could potentially buy my services, but they're also my list that I sell to brands that want to approach them. The second approach to customer creation and acquisition is direct sales. This is the door-to-door, right? Door-to-door, multi-level marketing, door-to-door, just shake hands, talk to people, try to figure out if you can find a customer simply by just speaking to many, as many people as possible. The third approach to customer creation and acquisition is a membership approach. So could you give someone low access to your knowledge? Can you give someone low-cost access to your people? Can you give someone low-cost access to your infrastructure, for example? So I think Costco is a great example. They, they give you very low-cost access to the infrastructure, and the infrastructure gives you a plethora of products that are better priced retail-wise versus a regular supermarket or a regular store. And in many cases, there's exclusivity. Because you're a member of Costco, you can get access to products and services. Others can't. So it's a membership approach. And again, you want to think about that. Where is my firm? You want to think about where's my firm now? Where do I want it to be? Does it fit into any of these? Is this congruent to what I want? Another one is, 
the freemium approach, where you have always a free version to get the foot in the door, and then it can be easily upgradable to a paid version. So I think uh, Earmark Media, the app, the wonderful app you use to get CPEs, it's a freemium model, right? So most people can get most CP, most courses that are available for free and get their CPE, but they pay a little bit extra per year and they have access to other courses, deeper, more advanced courses, that sort of thing. It's a freemium model. The next one is the free consultation approach. And I think most of this sort of small business accountants are in, in this one, which is case by case transaction underwriting, which is exhausting, by the way, <laughs> which is customer calls, I need something, you're like, okay, let me listen to your problem. And then based on you sort of in your head solving the problem and picturing what that solution looks like, at that point you decide, okay, we can work with you. Here's the price, maybe you're charging by the hour, maybe you're charging based on value. So how you charge, whether it's by the hour, by the, by the product, by the um, subscription, doesn't matter how you price, how you get your customer in the door your approach to customer creation was a free consultation in the first place. I started like that. Most people start like that. And the last one, my favorite, is the expertise approach. This is where all interactions are valuable. Like a customer saying hi to me, my response to them, it's already valuable from word one. That's the expertise approach. Most attorneys do this. Most Doctors do this. I've never been to a doctor where the consultation is free, or at least not in my world anyway. You know, consultations are paid. Doctors are not going to, like even a diagnostic is paid. So I believe that the expertise approach should be the one most people, especially when they have experience, they should look at. So Hector, question about your previous slide there. First, let's take a break and hear a message from our sponsor, Avalara. Thank you to Avalara for providing the financial support to make this series possible. Did you know that 52% of accounting practitioners from small to large still rely on spreadsheets and manual processes for sales tax compliance? It's time to stop and focus on automation. The Avalara for Accountants Suite empowers even the smallest practitioner to support clients' tax compliance needs, all firms can benefit from their referral program. Simply refer clients to Avalara and let them assist on your behalf. For practices that offer direct compliance services, you can use Avalara for Accountants award-winning tools to help you start or grow a tax compliance or CAS service. Expressly designed for accounting service providers with multiple clients, solutions include real-time rates, automated returns filing, registrations, tax research, and automated tax solutions for specialized tax areas. Partner with Avalara and grow your practice with efficient and accurate sales tax compliance while reducing risks for you and your clients. To learn more, contact Avalara at accountants at avalara.com. Just send them an email, accountants at avalara.com, or you can visit them at avalara.com slash accountants. talking about the membership approach, the freemium approach, what would that look like in an accounting firm? 
either one of those? That is such a good question, Blake. And the reason why it's such a good question for me is because I personally been on this journey where one of my personal commitments for next year is to turn my firm into a membership business model. A membership model. business model. Membership. Membership. I've been in a freemium model for a very long time, which is I create content in YouTube. I give away my email. I let everybody get some taste of my expertise for free, either through a video and by allowing them to email me. Sometimes I answer the email myself. Sometimes the answer to the email is you need a paid consultation. That could happen. But many times is, you know what? I think I understand your problem. Check out this video. Check out this article. So I've been in this freemium version, freemium approach for a very long time. Once I was at capacity where I couldn't really answer every single email, I switched to expertise approach where, hey, listen, just for me to listen to your problem, you got to pay. And it rubbed some people the wrong way, but then it started filtering people out. And then only people that are willing to pay at least $1,000, pick your number, doesn't matter, are the ones that can even ask me a question. So that's the expertise approach. But between that freemium approach and that expertise approach, there's just such a big gap where I'm trying to figure out how to transform to the membership approach. And what I'm thinking, I'm thinking about is how do I turn my firm into Costco, right? I don't know if you're a Costco member, Blake, but when you walk into Costco, that feeling is just different. It's different than any other store. Like walking into a Target, working into, which is, could be equal quality, walking into a high-end supermarket, a Whole Foods, walking into Costco is a different, it's a different feeling. Now, I could be biased because the very first store I came to when I came to America was Costco. And, and it just the impact of a Costco to a 12-year-old, it, it's, it's just really big. And Costco has a really special place in, in my heart. But what I'm thinking is, what if you become a member of my firm and as a member, then you get the freemium. So, so the freemium, it's only available to members. So you're a member. If you want to find out if we can help you with something, we will do the free consultation, but only to members. Does that make sense? So yeah. it's, it's yeah. taking the free consultation approach and the freemium and only giving that to members and, and telling someone, hey, do you want cohesive answers to your question? That might not be the solution, by the way. So as a, as a, as a small business owner, my question might be, should I amend my tax return? Right? That, that could be just a question that's bothering you. You don't know the answer. Should I be answering? Should I be th even thinking about this? And most accountants like, don't, don't want to deal with answering that because it's difficult to say yes or no because you have to listen to a whole slew of facts, facts and circumstances to know whether or not that's even something to think about. So if you paid a membership, you could ask all these silly questions, and I'm, I don't mean to call them silly, but anything that comes to mind is, should I be thinking about this? So that's, I think that's where I want to take my firm. So that I'm, I'm teaching the things that I'm learning that I also want to um, implement. And, and you don't have to be all of these or some of these. You just got to pick the one that makes the most sense. That's why yeah. I'm teaching them all so you can pick the one that makes sense with you. Yeah, that's that's great. I've I've seen yeah, I, I've heard about firm owners who are, you know, creating 
it, it could be as simple as like a Microsoft Teams or a Slack, or you could get some more uh, complex, you know, social, like private social media uh, for your firm, and then you charge a membership fee to to be, have access to that to clients. And then that's where you post your videos and that's where you post your answers to questions. And people who pay that membership fee can then ask questions in the forum, right? Right, which is private. And and then it's it's just so it's a way for you to do one to many instead of having to answer these questions one on one on one on one over and over again. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and just think about it. Let's say you're a tax practitioner and you have 500 clients or 200 clients. Right. The reality is the time that your clients will give you individually to actually learn from you and the time that you have to give individually time for them to learn from you, it's going to be limited. There'll be a point in time where there's only so much you can do for them. But if all your customers paid a membership of sorts and they have skin in the game, so they feel like, hey, if I don't use it, it's, it's you know, why have it, right? Right. So just like Costco, like, I think... One of the reasons I end up going to Costco is because I pay for the membership. <laughs> so, so because it's a lot farther away from my house than a local supermarket. So if somebody had skin in the game and they were paying a membership, I think they're going to want to use it and, and encourage people to have access in a one-to-many approach to te teach everybody about retirement plans, everybody about uh, prepaying taxes quarterly, everybody about some other new tax law or clean energy credits, R&D credits, or whatever, that maybe it applies to them. But going through customer by customer individually, underwriting it individually to figure out whether it applies to them or not, it's just not feasible. So being able to have a megaphone and talk to every customer at the same time, and the customers pick and choose what stuff attracts them, that could be a really powerful way to just create more value in, a, in, in scale. Makes sense. Okay. Next important lesson here is a business model is not chosen. It's designed. A business model is not chosen. It's designed. So if you're going to take a takeaway from everything we're teaching here is, well, Hector says I have to pick one. No, I'm giving you the entire framework and you customize it to work for you. And you can pivot or change your business model at any time. Now, your customer, you're going to drive your customers crazy if you're going to say, hey, this year you're going to pay monthly. Next year you're going to pay by the hour. Next year you're going to pay by, okay, they're going to go nuts. So obviously customers are not going to be too happy about your, you changing your business model. But if you change your business model for the new set of customers and can some, somehow sustain the old customers at the old model while you transition or test if the new approach is better, that could work too. So people transitioning from hourly to value, I recommend that you value price all the new customers and then little by little transition the hourly to value or going from value to subscription or hourly to subscription. Whatever business model shift you're going to make, a change of approach, you can design it for your next set of customers because you change your firm, you transform your firm, one new customer at the time. Very difficult to do it with all customers. The older the customer gets, the harder it is to get them to buy into a different approach. So Blake, my favorite way to approach business model is called the business model canvas. So just 
go to Google and type strategizer. So like strategy, Z-E-R, strategizer, and or type business model canvas. So don't don't say business uh, approach canvas just because um, the approach is sort of a term that I'm using to differentiate like the sort of the old school thought process of a business model versus a business approach. But you want to search business model canvas by strategizer. And what's really cool about it is you're going to get this eight and a half by 11 sheet. It's a PDF. You can, you can print it on a single sheet of paper. You can print it in a humongous poster board. And it's a visual way to design your business model. And it's broken down into nine quadrants. Key partners, key activities, key resources, your value propositions, customer relationships, your channels, customer segments, cost structure, and revenue stream. And we actually need a podcast for maybe two hours to go through this, this entire model. I studied the entire model. There's a book called Business Model Design um, that completely goes through this process. I strongly recommend it. It's one of my favorite ways to think about business model design. So one of the ways to, um, to, to break down those nine that I mentioned earlier is three groups, feasibility, desirability, and viability. So your, the feasibility of a business is, so the feasibility of a business essentially is your key partners, your key activities, and key resources. So do you have the infrastructure to deliver it? Partners, activities, resources. Resources could be an employee. Uh, um, resources could be a skill. Activities is your capacity to do it. Partners is, if you're a bookkeeping practice, you partner with CPAs, CPAs send you business. It's, it's, it's kind of an idea, but there's all sorts of partnerships. For example, I'm, a, I'm an educator as well as an accountant, and I partner with Blake to deliver education. Without Blake and Earmark Media and the Cloud County Podcast, this podcast series wouldn't exist. Without this partnership, I am less effective at my purpose to educate people in accounting and bookkeeping. So feasibility, key partners, key approach, key resources. Desirability, value proposition, customer relationships, channels, and customer segments. So do customers want this in the first place? And then we have viability, which is basically your cost structure and your revenue stream. So feasibility, desirability, and viability. Is it even worth doing? Can there be more income than cost. So think about um, looking into that business model canvas and probably the best way to design a business model. Like the exercise of the business model canvas is truly transformational. So those are the first two lessons. So we talked about the legacy of Peter Drucker. We talked about the business model canvas. And I'm going to leave you with my favorite one, which is what are the opportunities to create value? Think about every interaction with your customers or before their customers, your leads of your prospects, your future customers, and then the customers that you don't serve anymore. Think about every interaction with them as an opportunity to create or destroy value. This is my own personal theory, by the way. So Blake, you haven't seen, heard this before. I think you're going to like it. 
I believe there's nine key opportunities to create value. We have doing the, th the pre-purchase stage, the pre-purchase stage, there's three opportunities. One is called positioning value, the other one's called availability value, and the third one is pricing value. We're gonna break down each one. During the purchase and delivery stage of the transaction cycle, there's three opportunities to create value. Understanding value, performance value, and results value. So we got six. And in the last stage, which is post-delivery, there's three types of value. Membership value, tail value, and transformation value. Let's break them down. During the pre-purchase stage, so before the customer uh, makes the decision of hiring you, so before the customer makes the decision to hire you, they think about these three th essential things. They come to mind about how your firm can create value. So those three things are positioning. What do you promise to do? And we talked about positioning in an entire episode. What do you promise to do? The customer is asking, what are they promising to do for me? That's your positioning. It's a one question. If that question can be answered, then you create a value. Second one is availability. When can you do it? There's value on being able to do it now versus not being able to do it now. And then pricing, how much it will cost. These three elements, positioning, availability, and pricing, create value during the pre-purchase stage. But how do, we, how do we actually create value in these three things? But with positioning, we talked about this, you're gonna have a brand promise. So when you go to a store and you buy some audio equipment, right? You know that, and I'm not endorsing Bose, but most people know Bose is probably gonna be high quality. And you know what? Price follows. And if you went into a store wanting to buy a Bose because you love the brand, and the salesperson convinces you to go with a different brand because audio quality is very subjective, Many people, and I used to work for Best Buy a long time ago, and I experimented with this in, in the real world. Many people come back and return it. They're like, it didn't sound like a Bose. Even if it sounded better, even if technically and objectively and measurably it sounded better, because most audiophiles will tell you Bose sounds horrible. But customers love the way Bose sounds. So that brand promise creates value before they even buy. Second one is reputation. For accounting professionals, this is your reviews. This is customer recommendations. Do you have a reputation of being accurate, of being responsive, of being valuable, of fulfilling your promise? Another way to create value in positioning is your horizontal value. This is your unique skill set. We discussed that in podcast number one. Recommend go back and listen to that if you forgot about horizontal specialization. The next one is Vertical focus. Do you focus on a particular type of client? Clients like when they see you as a person that's been there, done that. Been there, done that is one of the single most important value drivers in this profession. Because especially small business owners that go through many bookkeepers and they complain about how many bookkeepers they go through is because all of them are generalists and they have not been there, done that. And they been in a similar place, done similar work, but they have not been there, done that. Customers want you to have been there 
and done that. Because that's precise. And that means I get what I pay for. That means I get what I wanted. Another way to create positioning value is through authoritative content. So if a customer of mine, a small business owner, not an accountant, happens to listen to this entire podcast series, I don't think that the first thought is, that guy doesn't know anything about business. <laughs> I think it's quite the opposite. So when you create authoritative content, people trust you. That's part of your positioning as your expertise. Next one is availability. So let's break down availability. So path of access. So let's, just, let's say, for example, you need a really good type of doctor, a specialist. Could you pick up the phone and talk to that specialist to find out if they can cure you or deal with your situation? Probably not. And there's value in that restrictive path of access because that restricted path of access spells that for you to get there, you got to work for it. And you also need to talk to level one specialist, level two specialist, level three, like you scale and you earn your way through that person has little path of value or, or, or has a difficult path of value. But, sorry, difficult path of access. Now, the opposite is true also. Being really available, being abundantly available could be valuable because sometimes it's a matter of timing. Sometimes a whale customer, an awesome, perfect customer that's going to pay you a lot of money could land in your lap. And if you answer the phone, you got him. But also, is that even sustainable long-term? The answer is no, not really. So you got to think about whether or not you want to create value through abundance, through availability, through easy path of access, or through scarcity, difficult path of access. Either one can create or destroy value, depending on how your business is structured and how it is positioned. So if you were a 32-year-old, 32-year-old fresh of college surgeon, for you to have a difficult path of access, it doesn't jive with what the customer's expectations are. If you have operated on this thing for 30 years, then they expect a difficult path of access. So availability can create or destroy value contextually. Response time can create value. Also, sometimes responding too quick <laughs> could give the signal that you're not busy enough, right? So again, it's, it's sort of a psychological game because value is subjective. So truly psychological. Location or proximity, so being close to the customer obviously helps. By the way, sometimes it helps being far away from the customer. So a lot of, the, a lot of the, my best customers are really far from me, like geographically. They're in California, Hawaii, or Alaska. And it's this thought that they had to go all the way across the country to find a specialist makes them feel that I'm more valuable. So again, it's interesting. It's, it's all psychological, all subjective. Location or proximity could either create or, or, destroy, or destroy value. And again, it needs to be cohesive to your strategy. Now, your platform or technology. So if you're an accountant that only works in QuickBooks Online or only works in Xero or only works in QuickBooks Desktop or only communicates via email or only communicates via WhatsApp or Slack, that platform 
It's how you're available to them that can create or destroy value. Ease of communications. Customers value extremely being able to understand what you're saying or making it easy to communicate with you, whether it's a phone call or email. It doesn't matter. They need to feel that it's easy. And also your pre-sales process, how you handle from a random person calling your office, a lead, how you handle that entire process until you literally call them to find out what can we do for you. So they leave your contact information on the website. What does that entire process look like through the first interaction? That's a piece that can create or destroy value. And pricing value all in this pre-sales process, pricing value, we're gonna discuss pricing in detail in another session, is do you have pricing integrity? So do you give discounts? Do you not give discounts? In my opinion, not giving discounts is the best way to go about it. Discounts should always be tied to a reduction of scope. Again, we're gonna have a whole podcast on that. Your pricing structure. So how do you price? How, how much down payment you require? Do you, the timing of the payment, pay now, pay later. Your price point, not, not the specific price, but the price point. So you can be a value price firm, but you could also be, you could also be perceived as a high price point. That means higher than the rest of the competitors or a low price point, very aggressively priced because you're acquiring new customers. So even though you're going to price, price based on value and there's not a commodity per se that's being uh, measured for price, the price point itself could be um, a value creator or destroyer. Do you give pricing options or choices that creates value? We'll discuss that on the pricing podcast. And are there discounts based on timing? So I'm not discounting to gain the customer. I'm discounting to reward the customer for paying quicker. That's fine. That creates value. Is there easy upgrade or downgrade? So they bought something, they engage into something. Can they easily move up and move down? That creates tons of value. This is why the subscription model is so popular because you hop in, you go up, you go down, you hop off. So if it's easy to upgrade and downgrade, that creates value, especially on the pricing side. And a free option, we talked about the freemium. I believe every firm should have a free version of what they do. Could it be YouTube videos? Could it be a library of content? Could it be an ebook? Could it be an actual book, physical printed book? But you always want to take away the most valuable piece, which is your one-on-one consultative work, and say, that's fine, you can't afford us now. Here's a freebie. Because that freebie, that freebie creates value. Because the customer goes, darn, I couldn't work with them, but I took something with, I took something with me. And that stays with them. And that's a constant reminder that when they're ready to pay you, you're going to be there for them. Next one is that middle stage, the purchase and delivery stage. So we talked about these three opportunities uh, to create value, which is understanding value. Basically, are the main pain points being addressed? That's the only question the customer is going gonna, is gonna to have in their mind is, are they actually addressing my pain points? Are they understanding them? Are they asking the right questions? In the sales process podcast, we're going to talk about all sort of 
specific questions we ask in order to make the customer feel we're addressing the pain points. Next one is performance value. How does it feel to work with you? If you've been to a play, which they call a performance, usually the way you feel in a play or in a concert is completely a personal spiritual feeling. It's a subjective feeling. So how does it feel to work with you? That's the performance value that can destroy or create value. And then results value, where the problems actually solved. So did the service actually attack and solve the problem? Not the underlying issue per se, we're talking about putting out the fire because the underlying issue is a transformation different than problem resolution. Problem resolution is putting out the fire where transformation is fundamentally changing the way your customer operates personally or as a business to not have that problem come up again. So understanding value could be the scope of work. So did you scope correctly? Did your scope explain correctly? Did you summarize the problem correctly? Did you do a needs assessment? I do this always through paid consultations. Did you have the value conversation, which we'll discuss in the pricing, pricing episode? Are you prioritizing expensive problems? That's a really important one. Are you actually laying out all the problems? Because the, the pro sometimes the customer gives you a problem and then it has layers and there's problems and sub-problems and side problems and side quests. So which is the actual expensive problem? Can you prioritize it? In performance value, it's very, very simple. What did your customer experience through every touch point? What technology did you use? How did you respond to feedback? Can they give feedback? Did they get a response to their questions? What's the response time? Is it pleasant? What's the pleasantness of working with you and your firm and your technology? Are you flexible? You tell the customer you have to use the portal, period. And that customer, for whatever reason, their technology doesn't let them use your portal or it's, it's, just, it's just a quirky thing for them, that's not flexible. That's, that could destroy performance value. So are you being flexible where, yes, you want to be efficient, right? But to give the customer a positive experience is to be effective. So to harp on, you have to use the portal, have to use the portal, where for the customer, it's not a positive experience. Yes, I understand you're trying to be efficient, but you're not being effective. Are there educational or entertaining experiences? So during the process of working with you, do they feel they're learning something new? Do they feel entertained? I don't mean ha-ha entertained. I mean like cool entertained. Because when you work with a provider that's efficient and uses great tech, you're entertained by just in marvel of how great they work. I love, for example, the see-through car, car wash. When I was a kid, uh, my, my dad used to take me to the see-through car wash where you either step out of the car and there's these huge windows and you see the car going through the conveyor belt per se. You see the whole process of the machines cleaning the car or, or the human beings cleaning the car. Or when you're inside, like the gas station um, uh, car wash, where you're actually seeing the soap coming in all through the window, almost like a, like a Disney ride, right? That's an entertaining experience during a, what seems like, like a mundane thing, such as washing the car 
or educational experience. Like, is a customer, does the customer feel they're learning new things while they're working with you? And also, you want to think about the visible versus invisible outputs. As a matter of fact, um, you know, we don't have time to go deep into this, but when you, when you productize a service, you want to think about what are the things that we do that the customer can see versus the ones that they can't see. And sometimes you design some to be visible and some not to be. I'll give you a classic example. A customer sends you an email about some issue with a tax return. If you want to make the entire experience invisible, you can email back saying, we address, we're addressing your issue, I'll let you know when it's done. And you communicate six emails, six, you know, six Slack uh, conversations back and forth with your internal employees. You figure out the problem and you come back, you bring it to visible again and tell the customer, we found the error, we fixed it, here we go. But that could be by design. What you can do is you can go back and forth with your employee, CC the customer the whole time, and they're watching this conversation go. And this conversation could both create or destroy value. In some cases, customers love to see you thinking through the problem. They value that. And in some cases, they hate being copied on something that doesn't have an actual action. Sometimes by hiding it and taking a week to respond, it doesn't give you any illusion of progress. You know, even though there's progress, there's no illusion of it. So sometimes bringing certain outputs or tasks visible to the surface creates that illusion of progress and makes the customer feel that they're part of the process. That we have results value. So the economic value of the work, like if I save somebody taxes through tax planning, there's real economic, tangible, measurable money value tied to the work. Emotional and spiritual value of the work. Giving somebody peace of mind is emotional or spiritual value. Making somebody feel that if they get audited, that return is ironclad, emotional, spiritual value. Are you guaranteeing a result? Are you, quote, de-risking the purchase? Are you transferring the risk of the unknown result to your firm? And if you do that, customers see, feel the value of the results because no longer they're worried about is this investment going to deliver the return that I'm looking for, the results. And the quality of the work, again, there's subjective and objective elements to this. As a firm, you should explain to your clients how you measure quality of work as from the firm's subjectiveness that should become your customer's objectiveness. And then you should ask your customer, Mr. Customer, how do you evaluate quality of work? What is your subjectiveness so I can understand my objectiveness. So my objectiveness is your subjectiveness and, and vice versa. And if both parties are not setting expectations to what is their subjective quality of work, you will never connect. And the results value will not be there. And the last one is during the post-delivery stage, the three opportunities to create value and actually trigger a recommendation, trigger repeat business, trigger word of mouth are one, membership value. The customer will ask themselves, am I a lifetime customer 
or was I a transaction? So like, what club do they belong to after transacting with you just once? Example, how many of you think that being a member of Mar-a-Lago, right? President Trump's property, the value is strictly on the physical building and the amenities of the building. No, the part of the value is a membership of feeling you can be around and express it. Make sure, like, forget about the politics. Just think about that concept. Like, if you are a famous YouTuber, or at least some people tell me, tell me that, people like to work with me and they like to say, you know who my accountant is? The YouTuber. And there's value just feeling like you're part of this special club. Are you creating that feeling for your customers? Are you creating membership value? Then we have tail value, which is how good is your warranty? Like if you guarantee something, how good is it? Like does it have tail, right? So how long on, after you do the work, the, the work is guaranteed? And last one, transformation. This is not just solving the problem, are you solving the underlying issue to make sure the problem doesn't happen again? So the customer is going to ask, am I in a better place now versus before after working with you? So that's the third lesson uh, of this three-part lesson, which is how we create value. And Blake, I'll let you help me with the ending here. Hey, Hector, we just spent over an hour talking about business models for accounting firms. Can you tell me in one minute, what is the ideal business model for an accounting or bookkeeping firm? Sure. Based on what we taught in this podcast, I think we can summarize the ideal business model into this. One, have a unique purpose and build a culture around it. Two, understand who is your customer and what they value. Three, rapidly accumulate knowledge and apply knowledge to knowledge to innovate. Four, always invest in marketing. I would probably say about 20% of your revenues should always go back into marketing and innovation. Five, outsource everything else. Most important thing is investing in marketing and innovation, outsource everything else. Six, take risks and never be afraid of making a profit. The profit is the cost of staying in business. Eight, become effective even at the risk of being inefficient. Being efficient at something that does not matter to your customer should not matter to you. Fulfilling your purpose, creating value, is being effective. You should always strive for that. Last one, listen to your customer feedback. Listen to your customer feedback. And I'll give you a bonus one. Disrupt yourself. Don't wait for your competition to disrupt your business. You disrupt yourself. Disrupt your own industry with your business model. Hector, I love it. 
To learn more about this eight-part series, to listen and subscribe, click the link. We will be back here live on YouTube on Friday at 11.30 a.m. Pacific, 2.30 p.m. Eastern. Subscribe to the Earmark channel to get notified when we go live. And if you want to get CPE, be sure to download the Earmark CPE app. We will follow up with an email next week with a link to the course. Log in to the app, take the quick five-question quiz, and get your CPE certificate emailed to you. 